Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 73, I believe, of the podcast. 73. Could be wrong. Could be 72. Could be 74, but I'm pretty sure it's 73. I usually get the number wrong. But uh, anyway, somewhere around there. But so, point being, uh, we're not such a new podcast anymore, but uh, for those of you who are out there who are listening for the first time, basically what we uh, do on this podcast is uh, I invite an author on to talk about a book of theirs that's been newly published, something we think you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers, yeah, you go out and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please make sure you give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Daniel J. Mahoney. And uh, Dr. Mahoney is a professor emeritus at Assumption University, where he taught from 1986 until 2021. He's a senior fellow at the Real Clear Foundation and a senior writer at Law and Liberty. Uh, he has written extensively on statesmanship, French political thought, the art and political thought of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, conservatism, religion and politics, and various themes in political philosophy in publications such as National Review, City Journal, First Things, The Public Discourse, National Affairs, The Claremont Review of Books, The New Criterion, among many others. Uh, he is the author of many books, including The Conservative Foundations of the Liberal Order, Defending Democracy Against Its Modern Enemies and Immoderate Friends, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Ascent from I- Ideology, uh, The Other Solzhenitsyn, uh, telling the Truth About a Misunderstood Writer and Thinker, uh, Bertrand de Juvenel, uh, Conservative Liberal and the Illusions of Modernity, and The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. And lastly, he is the author of The Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation, which will be published uh, tomorrow by Encounter Books. We're recording this on May the 23rd, so it'll be out tomorrow. And uh, it's the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Mahoney, thank you uh, very, very much for coming on the uh, podcast. I appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. And I should just add, as of May 1st, I'm a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. Oh, really? Cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. Uh, Well, first off, um, question I usually ask everybody that comes on the show. Uh, What uh, what made you want to write this book? What was the uh, what was the genesis behind it? Well, you know, there's a long genesis behind this book, not so much in terms of the writing of the book, but I probably thought about 20 years ago of eventually writing a book on statesmanship and statecraft. And there are a couple of motives behind it. One is, I think the way we think about political life today, certainly the peaks of political life are, it's it's pretty impoverished. We reduce politics simply to a game of power. We have a hard time uh, honoring or even noticing, you know, honorable ambition at work as opposed to self-aggrandizement or tyrannical ambition. Um, And, you know, I think it's always better to understand the low in light of the high than the other way around. So, uh, You know, in a way, uh, my book was inspired by Plutarch, not that I'm Plutarch, no one's Plutarch, but uh, except Plutarch. But the uh, the aspiration really was to do justice to noble exemplars of 
of uh, statecraft, of statesmanship. And as the title suggests, um, there are some rare um, statesman thinkers throughout the Western tradition, some American too, such as Lincoln, some of the founding fathers who were not only uh, admirable practitioners of politics, sometimes in very difficult circumstances, men of honorable ambition. Everyone in politics is ambitious. If you're not, you'll get nothing done. Ambition is not a bad thing if it's honorable, if it's linked to um, higher ends and goals. Uh, and uh, But who also were thinkers about human nature and politics, sometimes in a very significant way. And I wanted to highlight that achievement. I wanted to show that, you know, we impoverish our understanding of human nature and politics where we when we reduce everything to an amoral struggle for power. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that there isn't a power dimension to political life. To deny that would be very naive indeed. But not to distinguish the way Churchill exercises power. And the way Hitler exercised power is to miss everything. So, um, um, uh, yeah, and I also think that we commonly, commonly use the word leadership. But leadership is very vacuous. It doesn't tell you, I mean, being a leader doesn't have sort of a normative dimension to it. And I, I like to remind people in the 20th century, uh, all the totalitarian dictators like the word leader, you know, the Vosges for Stalin, the Fuhrer mm -hmm. for Hitler, the Duce for Mussolini. Mao had his version of that in Chinese. So um, statesmanship, I think, is something more elevated and more demanding than sort of ordinary um, political mediocrity. But it's also something, I think, distinct from simply leading. Mm -hmm. It's leading with a certain quality leading in a way that's inspired by the best traditions of one's country, maybe the best traditions of civilization. So that gives you a general idea. I don't, I don't think there's such a book. I mean, there's books on specific statesmen. There are books on leadership. Uh, often they're sort of business books. Yeah, know? lots of books on leadership. Yeah, what Lincoln <laughs> can teach you about making money, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. <laughs> or inspiring your company. Now, you know, you know, those things are not useless, but uh, I'm trying to do something else. I'm trying to uh, restore or recover a understanding of a rare, you know, this is not a commonplace in politics, but it's real enough. And mm -hmm. it, it um, you know, for example, I don't think we can understand the American political tradition without understanding the achievement of the founding which is, you know, I think we all know is under systematic uh, and grievous assault today, mm -hmm. or understand in the 20th century, how can we understand the, the fate of Western civilization without looking at the leadership provided by men like Churchill in, Fran uh, in England or de Gaulle in France, or even Adenauer, who was the first prime minister of West Germany after World War II, to have a, a man of that caliber who would lead Germany out of totalitarianism was not nothing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to widen the horizon and uh, restore a little bit of historical and moral breadth and depth to our reflection about the nature of political life. Yeah, so why, in your opinion, has the study of state, statesmanship fallen on such hard times? Well, I think part of it is uh, what I will call democratic egalitarianism. Um, you know, 
it is true, I think, that all men are created equal in the moral sense that, as Thomas Jefferson said in one of his last letters, you know, there's not a few men born booted and ready to ride, you know, mm -hmm. that's autocracy, which can readily degenerate into tyranny. Um, but this democratic egalitarianism, you know, um, I think Jimmy Carter once said, a government as good as its people. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, the people aren't always so good and uh, or so wise, you know, so there, there's today I think we need a certain populism, but we don't want to exaggerate the wisdom of 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 the people any more than we want to exa exaggerate the wisdom of experts. So right. um, I I think this this democratic leveling, you know, this this design this refusal to acknowledge that there are rare human beings who stand out. Uh, what Jefferson called the um, natural aristocracy. Jefferson wrote a letter to Adams in 1813 and said, "Our entire system of government." Uh, uh, exists in order to bring it, a natural aristocracy to the forefront, a meritocracy. Very few people would say that today. And uh, I think if you go to school, you know, beginning in about kindergarten, you are taught today. This is certainly the case in my day, and I'm 62. Uh, the uh, you're taught the limits of elitism. Elites are bad. You know, uh, that was generally a left wing position. There's a conservative version of that today, but. Um, the fact is every free society needs elites, hopefully not despotic elites, certainly not elites that are anti-patriotic or show contempt for common morality or common sense. But um, so I, I think that's part of it. Part of it is just the academic study of history and politics. I mean, in history departments today at the university level, it's all social history. You know, how people had sex, how they cooked, what were the folkways, you yeah. know. No one studies military, political, intellectual history. Literally, literally, you can't get a job at a major university. Gordon Wood, the great historian of the founding, told me before he retired at Brown that they would certainly replace him by somebody who did history from below, which is exactly mm -hmm. what they did. And history from below is often uh, it's false populism. It's neo-Marxism and all of that. And then in political science departments, um, the last time I counted, it was about 15 years ago, I think there were 42 or 43 recognized subfields. There's probably 48 in political science today. Not one of them is dedicated to the study of statesmanship, which is quite amazing. Uh, and I would say mo there, are, there are exceptions, uh, but most academic scholarship, if you want to call that, is aimed at tearing down right. the now, there, and the best historians writing today, the David McCullough's, the Ron Chernow's and all that, are not academics. No, no. They're, they're good writers and researchers who, there's exceptions. Alan Guelzo at Princeton, who, by the way, is not allowed, the, the great uh, historian of Lincoln and yep. Lee, and now he's working on a book on Grant and one of our great intellectual and political historians and biographers. He's at the John, uh, the James Madison Center that Robbie George runs at Princeton. Princeton yeah. yeah, but um, he, the history department doesn't allow him to teach. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, he's the wrong kind of historian. He actually teaches um, a, a kind of intellectual and political history that is of interest to citizens as such. Yeah, he's only won the Lincoln Prize like three times. I know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. By the way, for, for you laymen out there, if you think the academy's bad, multiply it by 25, and you'll have a sense of. I was at a, a 
a birthday party for my friend Harvey Mansfield at Harvard uh, in March. He's 90, the only conservative in Harvard, a great scholar, world-class scholar. And there were about 20 of us at the party who were talking, and, uh, and we all concluded that we could not get hired today. So that's the state of the academy. That doesn't mean that some, the university presses, I could name a half a dozen that are pretty good, but most places are only interested in books informed by the new racialism that, you know, are imbued by what the late great Roger Scruton called the culture of repudiation, to repudiate our country, to repudiate our inheritance, to paint it in as black, uh, a light as possible or dark a light as possible and to um, really deny the legitimacy of Anglo-American liberty. Uh, that sounds like I'm exaggerating, but you know, I, I think the nomenclature of ordinary discourse is behind the curve. What mm -hmm. I mean by that is it's not the case that the Academy is dominated by liberals. I, I wish it was dominated by liberals. It's dominated by radicals. Uh, who are um, really opposed to any kind of thoughtful and balanced and measured appreciation of the strengths and well as uh, weaknesses of our civic and civilizational traditions. So, um, uh, you know, the most bought and taught book on American history at the high school level oh, is in. Yeah, execrable yeah. book. Yeah. Bad history, a bad, terrible history, as Oscar Hanlon and other reputable historians have pointed out. But um, it sold two and a half million copies. I'm hoping Bill McClay's uh, recent book, The Land of Hope, which is a wonderful uh, account of the American story, uh, uh, not uh, uncritical, but self-critical as opposed to being informed by self-loathing i hope um i hope that does well but it's not going to be taught in many schools maybe classical schools maybe home schools that kind of thing but um uh so uh yeah there's a lot of obstacles and you know we've got to ask the question can a country long survive when its elites are imbued from a very early on with the view that we are uniquely culpable, you know? And it's a really interesting question. Patriotism just doesn't go on forever and ever and ever. Right. It, it needs to be cultivated, not through propaganda, but through some understanding of our common life and common history. And, uh, and that's not going on right now. So I'm hoping my book is, you know, one contribution to the renewal of some appreciation of the resources that, uh, when I say civic and civilizational, I mean not only the American civic tradition, but the broader Western tradition from what it from which it draws. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned uh, Roger Scruton a couple minutes ago, the English philosopher. You actually dedicated the book to to Roger Scruton. Uh, why uh, why the dedication to him? Well. I knew Roger well in the last years of his life. I greatly admired him. But I'm working on a book right now called Recovering Politics, Civilization, and the Soul, which is partly um, uh, about Scruton's work. But I, I would say the director, partly Roger died in January uh, 2020, and so I thought a dedication at this moment was fitting. 
But secondly, Roger was the great, eloquent, forceful critic of what he called the culture of repudiation. This desire to repudiate our inheritance, to repudiate our history, to somehow teach the young that the best, freest, most self-critical societies in the best sense in human history are uniquely guilty homes of repression and exploitation, racism, sexism, all the phobias and you know, the isms that we all know and hear every hour. So, um, but Roger did that with, he, he wasn't a polemicist in any crude sense. He was an exceedingly learned man. And, you know, in a way, my effort to recover a tradition of human greatness and honorable ambition is at least inspired in, in part by Scruton's effort to, I think one of the last phrases in my book is, the beginning of wisdom is to repudiate repudiation. You know, in other words, to say, we're not going to approve, uh, uh, approach the present and the past by simply repudiating our inheritance. We're going to affirm it, not in a, a uncritical way, but in a way that acknowledges the considerable strengths and virtues that have been bequeathed to us. So for all those reasons, I thought a dedication to Roger Scruton was appropriate and fitting. Gotcha. All right. Um, into the book itself, I guess uh, you pretty much have a chapter, um, one chapter each on some significant individuals. We'll get to that. Uh, I'll just I'll just ask you about those different uh, historical characters uh, in a bit, but um, your definition, the great, uh, the great souled man, uh, who, who or what uh, is is a great souled man? Well, I should begin by saying that phrase uh, comes from Aristotle in yes. his Ethics, the Nicomachean Ethics, and Aristotle defined. Megalosuchia, the great-souled man. We we know that term better from the Latin magnanimity. Today, magnanimity sort of means more like being generous. You know, it was a magnanimous thing to do. That's part of the meaning of magnanimity. But generous when you don't need to be generous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aristotle defined the magnanimous man as the crown of the virtues, somebody who was honored but deserved honor. You know, somebody who was uh, uh, who who embodied what the the Greeks and Romans called the cardinal virtues, uh, and that would be uh, courage, uh, justice, prudence. Edmund Burke famously called prudence the god of this world below. Prudence does not mean tepidness or calculation or you know, being careful. George Bush famously said, H. W. Bush wouldn't be prudent to talk too much about <laughs> the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know. No, prudence was a high virtue that meant that moral and intellectual virtue that allowed you the mixture of foresight, judgment, good judgment. Um, practical reason. Yeah, That's practical it. wisdom or practical reason. Mm -hmm. Probably they're the best two equivalent. Although in my book, I point out that Aristotle's portrait of the magnanimous man is not without a certain arrogance and hauteur, as the French say, you know. Um, uh, he's a little aloof and distant. 
And I, I suggest in my book that the person who, in the classical world, who best embodied greatness of soul, but in a politically palpable way that included moderation, although that I think is part of magnanimity, and uh, an ability to act and live and, and, in, and, uh, in a political setting was uh, the Roman statesman Cicero, who was a great political philosopher and also a statesman of note. He, uh, he did everything within his powers to try to save the Roman Republic uh, from Caesarian despotism, from the despotism of Julius Caesar. Didn't take part in the plot in 44 BC, but he certainly approved of it. He was eventually executed by the forces of Mark Antony, and uh, his hands and uh, tongue were cut out. Uh, uh, Mark Antony hated Cicero because of his Philippics, his speeches he gave attacking Mark Antony for trying to perpetuate Caesar's project of despotism. But uh, I take a lot of my bearings from Cicero in discussing greatness of soul because he did such a beautiful and eloquent job of showing how true greatness can never be severed from moderation or self-restraint. True political ambition cannot be severed or should not be severed from patriotism and a concern for the common good. And he was a great thinker. He wrote dialogues, the Republican laws named after or imitating Plato's titles for two of his famous political dialogues. But his book on duties about how to, his book really on moral and political duties, the offices, Deo Fickies, mm -hmm. was a major book in the education of Western uh, men and uh, for really up to the beginning of the 20th century. It was required reading. We live in a different world. You know, Edmund Burke's speech on conciliation of America was taught in most eighth grades in America between eight, uh, between 1899 and 1930. Can you imagine that book being taught today to eighth graders? Well, <laughs> yeah, Cicero, Cicero, very much shaped the Western understanding of greatness, of moderation, of a politics informed by the cardinal virtues, not just power seeking, not just ambition but ambition tied to virtue and the common good. And he wasn't naive. He wasn't a stupid idealist. He was, um, he was the real thing, that, uh, that, that great soul who brought together magnanimity and moderation. He didn't succeed, but I think his resistance to tyranny became an inspiration for later generations. You don't have to succeed. You know, as a 20th century political philosopher said, there's nobility in going down with flags flying and guns blazing. <laughs> yeah, and he's also he's also uh, a pretty good writer. I mean, for I mean, in the translation at least. Um, uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, on, duty, on duties. <laughs> he's he's fun to fun to read. Uh, you yeah, know, yeah. a lot of a lot of this stuff can be dry, but uh, yeah, no, Cicero and yeah. Cicero was a great rhetorician. Yeah, but also his book on duties is a really well written book and. Uh, Cicero was also the two major schools of philosophy in Rome were the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Stoics, I mean, you can you see books about Stoicism every five minutes, you know. But yeah, it's it, kind of trendy lately. It's kind of trendy, yeah. but Cicero 
he admired the Stoics' emphasis on moral duty, but he thought Stoicism went too far. You know, you can be happy even when you're, you know, being tortured. You can be happy even when uh, you live under a tyranny. Uh, the the Stoics call that apathia. You know, it's this idea that you know all you need to do is have internal peace no matter what he thought it was too apolitical it really didn't matter if you lived in a good and decent country because life could be too difficult you know most people cannot live decent lives if they're commanded by tyrannical rulers to be bad people and likewise the epicureans who thought the highest good was uh pleasure sometimes they get a bum rap because they weren't talking about vulgar eat drink and be merry for tomorrow you shall die Epicurus really meant the private pleasures of friendship and conversation and philosophy. But Cicero disdained the Epicureans because he thought they, uh, a little bit like the Stoics, discouraged people from taking their public responsibility seriously. So he was a great philosopher who fought tyranny, who linked greatness to moderation, and who understood that the philosopher had public obligations you know, that freedom and philosophy stood or fell together. So for all those reasons, and I, and I agree with you, he is a, he is a pleasure to read. Mm-hmm. Some of his works are harder on the divina- divination of the nature of the gods. <laughs> I wouldn't pick that up unless you're theologically inclined. But his political writings and his great speeches, the Philippics, yeah. uh, are uh, just powerful rhetoric. You know? Yeah, even his, uh, his murder trial, the... Uh, Varus and the others, yeah, yeah they're... They're uh, no, they're very evocative, very powerful. He, you know, the classics believe, you know, they 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 weren't sophists. They didn't believe that rhetoric should just, you know, make the worst case the better. But they knew that to make the the case for the best case, you had to be rhetoric had to be powerful, evocative, moving, and you had to know the human soul. And I think Cicero knew all of that. Yeah, I mean, you try to think how many works from today or within the last. 100, 200 years are still going to be in print 2,000 years from now. Um, you know, it's hard to say, but, you know, that's the whole... I'll tell you mean, Cicero story. must have been doing something good if all of yeah, his stuff is in print. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. I sometimes say to my students, you know, when we're reading Thucydides, reading Pericles' great uh, funeral oration, or reading Cicero, and I'll say, it's really... Or, or sometimes I would teach a Shakespeare play in one of my politics classes... So, so many of his plays are about ambition and statesmanship and tyranny, the history of Rome, history of England. I'd say, isn't it remarkable re- reading this book 2,500 years later, 500 yeah. years later? I'd say, do you think, uh, you know, I named some rock group, you know, and I'd say, you think we're going to be listening to them a thousand years <laughs> from now? And it's amazing. The students, it's like their official relativism. They say, oh, yeah, sure. I said, do you really think? Well, just think know, of how much music from the early part of the 20th century that's been lost I mean, yeah, not yeah. lost but i mean that is not in the popular consciousness but anymore. they have a hard time distingu- distinguishing i mean thucydides in the very beginning of the peloponnesian war which is a great work of political and intellectual history but also a philosophical study of human nature during mm-hmm. wartime and uh, thucydides makes the claim he said i'm not writing something that will win a momentary prize i've written a possession for all time and he says, because human nature fundamentally stays the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, you can also uh, translate the Greek as lasting possession, a possession that will last. That sounds a little more modest. Yeah. But he did write such a book. 
anyone who wants to think about peace, war, human nature, uh, the intersection of human nature, justice, power, political order, has to read Thucydides. And uh, we're reading him 2,500 years later like he's our contemporary. And uh, um, But again, I, you know, uh, my students resist that. You know, and, and the left resists it. In the academy, they say what's well, a canon, like a group of priests arbitrarily pick these books. And, uh, you know, it's simply a power play, and, and they don't really deserve to be read. Mm-hmm. So, so they, they need to be deconstructed, just like Washington and Lincoln need to be deconstructed, de- deconstructed et cetera, et cetera. I think that's all completely false. I, I think that um, greatness has a way of taking care of itself. And, you know, with any great author, there are periods where interest in their work declines for a while, but they always come back yeah. because there's some intrinsic worthiness in either the work or the life that merits our continuing attention. Unless we enter full-scale barbarism. I mean, it's true if these, if these ideologues win, maybe they will ban all these books. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'd like to believe that uh, we won't hit rock bottom or that something in human nature will revolt against the effort to repudiate um, the whole of civilization. So I refuse to despair. <laughs> Very good. All right. Um, all right. We'll just, I guess, go move ahead. And like I said, there's about a chapter on on each of the major, uh, like I said, ca- characters, I guess, in the book. Um, so we'll just talk about each one of them in turn. And starting uh, with uh, Edmund Burke. So uh, wh- what can we learn from Edmund Burke? Edmund Burke would be the closest thing to Cicero. We have in the Anglo-American tradition. He was a great political thinker as well as statesman. He, like Cicero, defended high prudence, uh, the god of this world below. He, um, uh, He represented what I would call the humane conservatism uh, he's most famous, of course, for his 17, his book published in November 1790 called Reflections on the Revolution in France, which captured the radicality, the, the nihilism, the sort of incipient totalitarianism of the French Revolution better than any book ever written. Um, uh, Burke famously distinguished between reform There's a beautiful line in the Reflections where he says, in order to conserve, it's necessary uh, to reform. At the same time, he was a forceful critic of what he called radical innovation, the desire to make the world anew, to recreate human nature. Uh, He defended what he called prejudice, not racial prejudice, but the wisdom of the ages, he thought that in ordinary wisdom and common sense and received tradition, there was a lot of nonsense. You know, there could be superstition, there could be bad practices, but the stuff that was truly um, the stuff, the, the the wisdom that had been passed on that had, you might say, uh, survived um, the judgment and experience of the ages. He said, "We're foolish to throw that out. We are not capable." either as collectivities or individuals in figuring this stuff out all for ourselves. So 
we, we have to show respect to receive tradition. And that means that uh, a, any commitment to political reformation, to reform, had to be built on a solid foundation of conservatism, of respecting the wisdom of the ages. Um, and that mixture, I think, of liberal reform and conservative tradition really defined Burke both as a uh, statesman and as a political philosopher. And uh, there were some contemporaries of Burke who were really surprised by his vehement opposition to the French Revolution because they knew he had he had displayed some sympathy for the rightful grievances of the Americans in the 1770s. I think he, he knew that America, in a way, had grown into a separate society, building on English law and liberty, but he, I think, understood that uh, the Americans had reasons to go their own way. He was born in Dublin, was of Irish descent. His mother was a Catholic. He was a very strong critic of the disabilities against the Catholic population. Uh, he thought, you can't have a society where all property, all rights, all power lays with a minority and the majority population is simply left out and treated not a, perhaps not as slaves but as non-citizens so uh and he predicted if um the rights of the and the dignity of the catholics in ireland wasn't respected that it would lead many catholics to turn to revolution or to mob action etc and he was he 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 um led an impeachment against the head of the East India Company, which was a colonial trading company that really ruled India in the late 18th century, Warren Hastings. He accused Hastings of being utterly disrespectful of the customs and traditions of the Indians, of being corrupt, the native Indian uh, Indians of the Indian subcontinent, being corrupt, of ruling with a heavy hand, etc., etc. So... Uh, all of that suggested a man, and he, and, he, and he introduced a sketch on the Negro Code in the 1780s that uh, was working to the gradual abolition of slavery. That would come in the early 19th century, and then, of course, Britain would outlaw the slave trade in 1833 and then use its navy to, to crush it. You know, uh, uh, the Pax Britannica was used as a great... Um, instrument to subdue the slave trade. So uh, Burke in so many ways was a humane reformer, but as I mentioned before, his uh, efforts at reform were always linked to a more fundamental respect for the wisdom of the mm. Western tradition. And that meant the English tradition of law, liberty, and constitutionalism but the, also the larger Western tradition, the Christian religion, yeah. uh, classical literature and philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, um, some of his contemporaries were surprised that, you know, how could you could support the the Americans in their revolution and not the French in theirs? But, uh, you know, as you said earlier, that, you know, conservative reform even conservative revolution is respectful of the system or, or the tradition uh, it's seeking to improve. Uh, and that's really what the American Revolution kind of, I mean, it was revolutionary, but 
I mean, the whole point was basically just to, these guys wanted to make sure they preserved their, what they thought were their natural born rights uh, as Englishmen. Um, and I think- not, not to totally remake society, uh, you know, uh, root and branch as a whole, which is what eventually happened with the French Revolution, you know, with replacing the months <laughs> of the calendar and, you know, starting the year zero and, and, uh, you know, getting year rid zero of the- is terribly important to him <laughs> because it suggests an ambition to be, uh, to begin from a tabula rasa right. to, the French po- Catholic poet and philosophy for uh, Charles Péguy at the beginning of the 20th century said the radical revolutionaries thought everything was darkness until 1789 and then came electricity. You know? yes, yes. And we didn't do that. We don't we didn't um, establish a revolutionary character calendar with 13 months with eight days in the week, like in a Beatles song to <laughs> el- eliminate the, the, the Sabbath. We didn't uh, date either uh, the beginning of the revolution, the, the the calendar from either the beginning of the Revolutionary War, or from the Constitutional Convention. We never had a year zero. And uh, now it is true our dollar bill uh, invokes the new order of the ages, but I think that new order of the ages meant a certain confidence in the capacity of a free people to govern themselves under the rule of law. Mm-hmm. It, we had a revolution, but it was not a total revolution. It was not a revolution that aimed to. Uh, it was what the. It was a political, but not a cultural revolution in a way. Which I think that's right. right. Yeah. The, the the political scientist Martin Diamond, uh, in a beautiful essay, called it the revolution of sober expectations. There you go. There yeah. You go. And the French Revolution, and by the way, it's interesting, uh, Alexander Hamilton, the founders were a bit split on the French Revolution. Jefferson was too sympathetic. Tom Paine was the first political pilgrim. He went over to France to express his uh, uh, enthusiasm and support for the revolution. But then when he stood up in the Constituent Assembly and argued for mercy for Louis XVI and his family, he was arrested and became a political prisoner. So the revolution was devouring its children. But other founders like Washington, and especially Hamilton and Adams, they went out of their way to very firmly distinguish between the two revolutions. Uh, um, Hamilton said it's an affront to the dignity of the American Republic to compare our revolution with the French Revolution. He said a revolution made by fanatics in political science. Yeah. Okay. Uh, moving forward, uh, still sort of on that topic uh, with the French Revolution. Uh, the next chapter of the book is on Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, you call him the thinker as statesman. Um, so, what de Tocqueville? What can we learn from him? Well, you know, as I say in the title of my Tocqueville chapter. Tocqueville aimed, he certainly defended a moderate version of democracy, but he also knew democracy had tendencies toward tyranny, toward a radical and leveling egalitarianism, what he called a passion for equality that could overcome the taste for ordered liberty. Mm -hmm. Uh, He admired America because... It was an example of a lawful, moderate, free democratic republic. 
But I call Tocqueville a, a thinker, a statesman, because he's most famous to Americans as the author of Democracy in America, published in two volumes in 1835 and 1840, a book we still read because it wasn't just a travelogue about um, Jacksonian America, but it was a moral, political, philosophical reflection on it's the It's still the most astute book on America. It is, ever. it is. But, you know, Tocqueville not, and, and the French uh, pay a lot of attention to his 1856 work, uh, L'Ancien Régime et la Révolution, The Old Regime and the Revolution, which is a great book trying to figure out the relationship between the old French order, the revolution, the new and emerging democracy in France, uh, democratic social state more than the, 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 the French had a really hard time establishing ordered liberty. You know, uh, they've had 20 different political regimes. I don't mean administrations or government. I mean, 20 different constitutions yeah, yeah. since 1789. <laughs> the old joke was if you want to uh, get a the, book on the French constitution, go to the periodical section. Yeah, you know? so we're, we're on the, the fifth, the fifth Republic right now, right? Yeah, and that yeah. dates from 1958. Yeah. But that's, in a way, the two major political parties, the Gaullists and Socialists, associated with the Fifth Republic, got a total of 6.7% of the vote in the French first round of the presidential election in April. So the, the Fifth Republic, it's not dying, but there's already people saying France, this left-wing can candidate Mélenchon, is saying France needs a radical sixth republic. You know, so there's a kind of instability in French politics. Tocqueville experienced it. He tried as a statesman, uh, not just as a political philosopher and political author, but he tried to bring um, a perspective of moderation. You know, you might say to meld together the best of conservatism and liberalism in the French context. So he did not want to go back to the Ancien Regime. He was not a reactionary. He was not nostalgic or excessively nostalgic for the past, but nor was he a radical who sympathized with the Jacobins or their latter-day descendants, socialists and communists. Um, he preferred constitutional monarchy for France, uh, although he certainly understood republicanism was the form that political liberty would take in the United States. But, you know, he, from 1839 on, he was a member of the Legislative Assembly. Uh, he um, introduced legislation to abolish slavery. At the same time, he supported um, the French Empire, especially French settlements in Algeria. But he was a very strong critic till his dying day of slavery in America, wrote an open letter to the American people in 1856, saying as a half Yankee, it pained him to see the perpetuation of slavery in the freest country in the world. He was even foreign minister of France uh, uh, for a year or so, year and a half in uh, 1849-1850. And uh, he was arrested when Napoleon III, the president of France, Louis Napoleon, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, staged a coup d'etat in December 1850 and eventually made himself emperor. So uh, what's so interesting about Tocqueville is he's more remembered as um, a political philosopher, the great political philosopher of modern democracy, but he was also somebody who tried to apply his ideas in the French context. 
to bring something of that spirit of a moderation at once conservative and liberal to a France that was torn between the two extremes. Jean Morin, who was the head of Action Francaise, a right-wing French political movement of the 20th century, said, there's only one thing you have to know about the French. They hate each other. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I think he meant that at the political level. And uh, less so today, of course. But Tocqueville, I think, he did not succeed. Uh, He tried nobly. But his path of of statesmanlike prudence and moderation certainly lives in his books. And uh, he probably had more success as a thinker than he did as a statesman. Yeah. Uh, Back to Napoleon uh, real quick, my favorite, like weird, uh, the thing that always struck me is like the funniest whole thing about Napoleon, not Napoleon, Napoleon himself, but his uh, <laughs> that his older brother uh, Joseph, uh, uh, Joseph Bonaparte. Napoleon made his brother uh, first, uh, or he was king of Naples and then the king of Spain, and then got booted out. And then he just became, he like moved to the United States, moved to Jersey, and just became like a regular dude, just, you know, living in North it's Jersey. And, uh, you know, he's Napoleon's brother. I mean, it's just so, uh, just, just very strange to me that uh, a brother of Napoleon would just well, be, you know, kicking around North Jersey and just. Napoleon the you Third, know. he was a bit of an adventurer, swindler, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, he was an intelligent man, or at least Tocqueville says so, but he was not a particularly noble man. And uh, if, he, if he wasn't the nephew of Napoleon, he would have been nothing. But his uh, third empire fell because during the Franco-Prussian War, he got captured by the Germans. Mm-hmm. And you can't really be a Bonaparte as a prisoner of war. <laughs> yeah. it's, yeah. it's humiliating, you know? Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, we forget, uh, you know, we think, it really wasn't a monarchy in the traditional sense, legitimism, hereditary monarchy, because Napoleon made him safe ruler, and as you pointed out, made his brothers gave his brothers and sisters various roles throughout. Yeah, I mean, uh, he took the crown right from the Pope's hand, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, the, he invites a captive Pope in 1805, <laughs> 1804 to crown him, and then steals the crown, puts it on his own head. So, and by the way, that's the act of a despot, because the whole point of having the Pope crown you is to say your rule is under God. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, Napoleon is saying my rule is under nobody. Right. And I, I think uh, early in the book, I quote Tocqueville about Napoleon as saying he was as great as you could be without being good. <laughs> and I begin the book with uh, Tocqueville's cousin, the great writer uh, Chateaubriand, uh, uh, in his memoirs compares to Napoleon and Washington. He, he he had met both men, and he was struck by the authentic greatness of Nepal, of Washington, in part because Washington was willing to go home. He, he, yeah. he, his, his greatness was tied to self-restraint and moderation, which in a way made him more honorable and remembered, while Napoleon didn't know how to go home. And, uh, you know, they, he's, he's, he's defeated in 1815. They send him to the island of Elba. He escapes. You know, he makes himself ruler of France again, claims he'll be a constitutional monarchy. He's defended uh, a monarch. 
he's defeated at Waterloo, and then the English say, well, we're not taking any chances. They send him to an island in the South uh, Atlantic. Where yeah, you know, the Elba seem always seemed kind of silly to me. <laughs> I mean, uh, if you really wanted to get rid of Napoleon, uh, I mean, because they're, I mean, they're, you know, all the guys are sitting around in Vienna uh, at the Congress of Vienna trying to, you know, sort of put the toothpaste back in the tube uh, before the revolution, and they stick him in Elba. But I mean, it's like it's really easy to get back on the continent from Elba. <laughs> so, but why not? Why not just stick him in St. Helena in the first place? He could be on the the shore of southern France. So yeah, was, I mean, why not? Why didn't? Why not just stick him in St. Helena in the first place? You know, I don't know. Well, I I think retrospectively they learned that lesson. Yeah. Uh, and Napoleon was not going to be content being a uh, the constitutional symbolic monarch of an island of fifty thousand people in the Mediterranean. That's you know. Yes, that right. w- that was below his his uh, his ambition. Yeah, it's not even it's not even Corsica, so you know. That's right. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move forward a little bit then um, from one uh, quasi-American to uh, an actual American, uh, Abraham Lincoln. What what can we learn from Abe Lincoln? And also, uh, you write in the book that uh, the point where Lincoln becomes fully Lincoln, quote unquote, is uh, with the Peoria Address. And, um, how so? What's the importance of the Peoria Address? Well, and then, and you then... know, Lincoln had been elected president, uh, a congressman in 1846 for one term from the state of Illinois. He was a uh, very fierce critic of the Mexican War. I think in large part because he wasn't crazy about American imperialism, but I think more deeply because he understood that the extension of an American empire was a occasion for the South to spread slavery mm. to new lands, new states, new territories. But, you know, he essentially, he lost in 1848. He, reti- he, he, he went home to practice law. He was a very successful law, law lawyer, mainly for railroad companies who were expanding in the West. But it was the repeal of the Missouri Compromise that uh, a very carefully wrought compromise in 1820. Missouri was allowed into the Union as a slave state. Maine, as a formerly part of Massachusetts, as a free state, but slavery was to be excluded from other states and territories. And uh, the repeal of the Missouri Compromise essentially opened up the entire country to slavery. And in his famous debates in the 1850s, 1858, for the Senate race, for the senatorial position in Illinois, uh, Lincoln mocked Stephen Douglas uh, for saying, you know, I don't care if they vote slavery up or down. You know, each state, each territory had the right to choose whether to be free or slave. Uh, Lincoln argued in the Peoria Address of 1854, which was a response to the repeal of the Missouri Compromise and to debates about the status of slavery in the Kansas-Nebraska Territory. He argued that the founders, and I think he was quite right about this, had put slavery on the road to eventual extinction. Uh, The Northwest uh, Ordinance of 1787 forbade the spread of slavery to what is now Ohio, Michigan, Indiana. Um, um, They allowed for the abolition of the slave trade in 1808. 
And they certainly did not want to see slavery spread outside where it already existed. And so this was an alarm bell ringing in the night for Lincoln. And he re-entered national politics with the Peoria Address. And that address, he of course makes a constitutional argument and a even more fundamental argument about the Declaration of Independence, which he called the sheet anchor of American republicanism. The Declaration of Independence affirmed that all men are created equal. It meant all men, not just white men of British descent, as Stephen Douglas or Justice Tawney in the Dred Scott decision would claim. Uh, but he also made um, moral and philosophical arguments against slavery. Uh, he said that uh, even the Southerners won't let their children play with the children of slave traders. They knew they had a moral sense that told them that this was beneath contempt as a vocation or way of life. Um, and uh, Lincoln, um, I, I think Lincoln, you know, people cherry the 1619 people. It's a, such an egregious distortion of history, but they cherry pick these speeches. And when Lincoln says, look, just because um, a black woman has the right to what she's earned by the sweat of her brow uh, um, doesn't mean you have to marry her. That becomes evidence that he was some kind of incorrigible racist. He was no racist at all, as Frederick D Douglass testified, but he knew many Americans were racist. So when Lincoln said to a art audience of farmers in Illinois that who are, who are by our standards racist but anti-slave, you can oppose slavery without having to have a black family over for dinner, not to mention marrying a black woman, he was not being racist. He was being prudent. He was trying to edge public opinion toward a fuller affirmation of the Declaration's teaching that all men are created equal, and the longtime American consensus that slavery was a moral abomination. So only in the 80, 1840s, so there was a guy named George Fitzhugh in a book called Cannibals All and, and Calhoun. They were the first two prominent Americans to say slavery was a positive good. And Lincoln was very alarmed by that because he thought even the South Carolinians and Georgians at the Constitutional Convention uh, admitted uh, that slavery was an evil. But to say it was a positive good was to undermine the sort of lifeblood of the American Republic. So I think the Peoria Address, it's a very long speech. His most famous speeches and greatest speeches, Gettysburg, 1863, and the second inaugural of March, 1865, are very short indeed and very noble and eloquent, and, but full of wisdom. So is the Peoria Address. But it's, you know, 30 or 40 pages. It's uh, everything Lincoln thought about the American political order, its animating principles, and its relationship to slavery is in that 1854 Peoria address. Okay. All right. Uh, let's move ahead again. And uh, just another thing, we would talk about how, uh, how good of a writer Cicero was, but uh, just kind of struck by every one of the, like I said, the main uh, characters in the book, uh, you know, Burke, Lincoln, uh, Churchill, who we'll get to in a second, um, and even de Gaulle uh, and uh, Václav Havel, uh, all um, tremendous writers in their, in their way, you know? They're exquisite writers, yeah. yeah. Burke, uh, is, Burke is as eloquent in English as Cicero was in Latin. 
I think one reason why the Reflections lives as a great book of political philosophy and a warning against ideological tyranny is because of its sheer eloquence as, as well as its wisdom. Everything Lincoln wrote was a kind of poetry, mm-hmm. um, inspired in part by the King James Bible and his reading of Shakespeare. Um, he once read excerpts from Macbeth to the cabinet in 1863 as, uh, as they were going down a boat on the Potomac River. Can you imagine a president doing that today? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or Churchill. I mean, Churchill used to, uh, you know, would uh, quote poetry, uh, just stuff he had memorized, you know. Uh, he had memorized the- a very long poem mm-hmm. by Pauli, The Lays of Rome, and he knew it by heart. Churchill, uh, people tend to forget this. A lot of people seem to think he won the Nobel Prize for Peace. No, I, for, for his uh, literature, for his for writing. literature in yeah. 1952. And, um, uh, you know, if you read nothing, uh, the, the great wartime speeches, like the Finest Hour speech of June 18, 1940, the Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat speech of June 4, 1940, they're magnificent. But the first volume of the Second World War, The Gathering Storm, not only tells the story of the shameful appeasement of Nazi despotism, but it does so in such moving, dramatic, evocative rhetoric. I mean, it's like a thriller. And um, uh, and, and and Churchill, you know, he, he he saw himself as a kind of historian, not an academic historian, but as a historian of the English-speaking peoples. He was also... Um, yeah, he he was the cousin of the Duke of Marlborough, but he wasn't the Duke of Marlborough, so he had to make he he needed to make money. Yeah. And so he, he was wrote, a scribbler. He was a scribbler. Yeah. And you know, there's a wonderful book called Thoughts and Adventures, some of his very best essays. It's a, available in a relatively new edition edited by Jim Muller. These are essays that were published in 1932. They're all great. There's one of Moses, Consistency in Politics, Painting as a Pastime, uh, all these essays. He originally wrote them for popular magazines, you know, in part because he had something to say, but in part because he needed the money. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so he was a writer. Yeah, uh, and uh, and he was also an artist, not a bad painter. Uh, it's funny. Well, uh, he, th- he thought he was uh, good enough to improve on a Rubens <laughs> that he had in his house. That's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> I would say Churchill was certainly a competent painter. His paintings, a lot of them are set in southern France when he vacationed there or of sort of, you know, pastoral scenes from Chartwell. They certainly have vivid colors. Uh, and uh, the point he makes in painting in the past, I mean, he makes a couple of interesting points. He he compares painting to military strategy. You have to put holes and parts together. Mm-hmm. A really interesting comparison. But he also said um, um, a statesman needs a good hobby, you know, something to – he can't just be preoccupied with political action all the time. And the fact that, you know, Churchill contemplated about human nature and he was a decent painter. And it suggests that, you know, that the day the day to day political crises that preoccupied him from 1900 to uh, the early 1960s were not the whole of his life. And I think that's an important lesson for statesmanship. Yeah, he's the uh, the 20th century's indispensable man you know so um the the thing about churchill too it's just i've mentioned this before on other podcasts but um just reading about him or reading his stuff it's just it's just fun uh 
spending time in in his company in a way. I mean, not that we can, you know, in the in the physical sense, but just uh, but just spending time with him, uh, was, it's enjoyable. He was vibrant and energetic, yeah. and he loved life. I have a little footnote in my Churchill chapter from the the great British uh, journalist and writer Malcolm Muggeridge reviewing one of the volumes from the Second World War in 1949, and he said, you know, Churchill doesn't pretend, oh, this was all a terrible burden. And he says he was never so happy it was when he was in command. And he says at the end of the gathering storm, I never had trouble sleeping during the war because he had a certain confidence with him in charge. All would be well. (laughs) (laughs) But Churchill loved life, you know, and uh, there's a there's a myth, you know, in one letter. He talked about the black dog and there's oh his uh, depression. Yeah, that's yeah. uh, He mm -hmm. was he was uh, he was not a manic depressive. He was uh, that that single line. No, it's not in a letter of his. It's in his the diaries of his doctor Moran from mm. World War II, and that has given rise to this legend that you know Churchill was uh, uh, depressive. But I don't think there's any real evidence for that. Nor was he a, an alcoholic. He um, he drank every day, and he drank maybe five drinks a day. But he did not drink quickly. He did, he he nursed a scotch for like two or three hours. Uh, he there's a lot of water in there too. A lot of water. And, you know, when they did the um, uh, autopsy when he died in his 91st year, his liver was in pristine shape. Maybe he had, God had given him or God in nature had given him a very tough liver. But uh, uh, the, there's also a myth that uh, he had a drinking problem. I don't mm. think there's any evidence of that. Yeah, um, it's amazing, too. I mean, you think of like the, the full scope of his life, um, you know, he's born... Ulysses S. Grant is still alive when he's born. He's born, you know, less than a decade after Lincoln is assassinated. If Lincoln is not assassinated, it's highly likely that they would have been alive at the same time. And then, uh, you know, Lincoln's the, son Robert died. Robert Todd Lincoln died in 1926. Yeah, and you know, then we, and we then that. and by the time Churchill dies in 1965, I mean, he's so he's basically gone from. You know, Ulysses S. Grant to seeing Beatlemania. Well, that's right. And, you know, uh, Churchill, Churchill did lament the decline of greatness. If you read his portraits of great figures from his youth and not just his youth, some of his contemporaries, great uh, contemporaries. contemporaries, Yeah, I have that. Yeah, it's a great book. Mm -hmm. And um, he 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 saw that there was a kind of human type, a kind of a combination of liberal education and ethic of service the old manners, the old patriotism that he saw in the Victorian age. And he knew something had been lost. You know, he had, he has another essay on thoughts and adventure called mass effects in modern life. You know, he, it's not, it's not that he denounced democratic society for its mediocrity, but he knew what was mediocre. It wasn't going to produce many Churchills, you mm-hmm. know? And so that's an interesting lesson, you know, Churchill and de Gaulle, uh, Churchill was born in 1874. Charles de Gaulle was born in 1890 and died in 1970 at the age of 80. Now, they both use their considerable acumen, insight, patriotism, energy to defend, um, you know, rule of law democracies against totalitarian states. But they were also products of an education that wasn't simply democratic. 
you know, uh, DeGaulle was an extremely well-read man, and um, uh, he was shaped by older – he supported the French Republic, mm-hmm. he, uh, but he was shaped – he was a Catholic conservative. You know, he was, uh, he was somebody who brought together the best traditions of old France with more recent Republican traditions. But there was a cultivation – uh, neither Churchill nor Gaulle had a, a, a traditional university education, but they read classic books, they read great literature, they read poetry, and they read a lot of history, uh, classic history, not mm-hmm. academic history. And so it's, a, it's an interesting question whether or not democratic conditions, you know, with this egalitarian ethos, with the sort of dumbing down of education – with political correctness in the schools, whether the the conditions will be there to produce another Churchill or de Gaulle, their kind of heroism on behalf of constitutional democracy. I think that's very much an open question. Yeah, you'll I'd probably like to say no. Um, I mean, at least in Europe, it seems that, you know, after the Great War, uh, I mean, there were certainly among the more... Uh, elite members of society, the nobles, the aristocracy, uh, a a sense of duty and a sense of service uh, to one's country and uh, a sense of duty to lead others. Um, And then when, uh, you know, the Great War just turned into this massive uh, charnel house and that, uh, you know, decimated um, so many of the uh, these uh, upper crust families that lost sons and nephews and uh, to uh, in that war uh, because it, I mean it really did there was a I mean a significant <laughs> uh, bloodletting in the uh, upper classes in that war on all sides German uh, French you know, British whoever. Um, I think that really, it seems to me the Great War is when Europe sort of lost faith in itself or uh, it's lost its belief in itself and uh, what it stood for in a way. And in America, I don't know, it's a little different. But even that has changed. I mean, because you think about, uh, you know, they always, uh, Harvard likes to bring up that Harvard has the most uh, Medal of Honor recipients outside of the, outside of like West Point, uh, I think. Uh, of any other uh not in the last four said four decades <laughs> right 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 but that's my point yeah i said that's you know sure that's because of the civil war and you know earlier when when again when american elites had sort of that same uh, i don't i don't want to call it noblesse oblige but that same sort of spirit of service i mean the whole sort of concept of like the gentleman soldier has just sort of gone away very interesting tim both churchill and de gaulle were very critical of appeasement in the 1930s they understood i think the real nature of the nazi regime this wasn't villa mine germany this wasn't traditional germany this was a you know a nihilistic ideological regime dedicated to festering cancer a festering (laughs) cancer yeah yeah. and they use that kind of language Mm -hmm. but um they both knew that this pacifism that was so destructive, you know, the the students at Oxford, the right, Oxford, right, yeah, 35, we shall never again fight for king and country. Mm-hmm. I think they knew that that was a natural byproduct of the terrible bloodletting and 
loss of self-confidence that flowed from the Great War, as everyone called it up till World War II. So um, on the other hand, um, as Churchill points out in his memoir, so many of those men who voted never to fight for king and country fought honorably and some sure. of them died honorably. So it was a, t a tremendous wake-up call. But I do think that um, that ethos of service that was linked to uh, the gentleman soldier, the gentleman soldier statesman, um, it's pretty much gone in the West. And you look, I, well, one big point I make in the book is if you look at the wartime rhetoric of Churchill and de Gaulle, and de Gaulle famously kept the resistance going after the official government of uh, France signed an armistice uh, with Nazi Germany on June 22, 1940. And he, the same day Churchill gave his great finest hour speech, Churchill spoke on the B de Gaulle spoke on the BBC from London, his great appeal to honor and resistance. But when they say what was at stake in the war, they didn't talk about human rights, although they believed in human rights. They didn't talk too much about democracy. They talked about Christian civilization. Mm -hmm. Nazi Nazism was an assault on Christian ethics, on the, the dignity of man. Uh, Paul Reynaud, the last prime minister of France before the armistice, said, what the Nazis bring is the Middle Ages, but without mercy. <laughs> and I don't think we have any Western statesmen today who even think of the Western world as owing, you know, ha ha being a product of something more than democracy and human rights, you know, the Christian and classical heritage. But that was very much alive in Western education in France and England and the United States well into the 20th century. So something dramatically has changed and it, it, it influences and affects in answer to the question whether or not, um, this kind of statesmanship is likely to be seen in the future. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, uh, speaking of De Gaulle, uh, you wrote in your De Gaulle chapter that uh, De Gaulle is, uh, quote, perhaps the most impressive statesman thinker of the 20th century. That's a that's a pretty it's a pretty bold claim. Why uh, why do you uh, why do you make that statement? Make the well, case for De Gaulle on the political level. Um, Churchill inherited a three-century-old tradition of ordered liberty, of liberty under law, not only going back to the glorious revolution of 1688 when England effectively became a constitutional monarchy, but going back much longer. All we have to do is read Shakespeare's political histories to see that. The mm -hmm. goal, in a way, had to start from scratch. The, uh, the, the armed forces... Uh, he was, it was a member of the last government of the Fourth French Republic, but the armed forces, General Vigon, Pétain, and others, had chosen the path of accommodation and appeasement. Vichy, at the beginning, didn't start off being simply a pro-Nazi government, but it became that by 1942. So de Gaulle, you know, had nothing but himself, really, when he spoke on the radio in June 18th, and he eventually built La France Libre, Free France, which became... Um, the the heart of the resistance. Of course, the resistance at home was basically led by the communists, and I think without de Gaulle, the communists certainly would have come to power. Um, and then also, France had lousy political institutions. This constant Franco-French civil war between left and right, Catholics and secularists, increasingly the left and the liberals. And de Gaulle gave 
France in 1958 its first truly legitimate and workable constitutional order. You know, the Communist Party got 40, 45 percent of the vote in the elections mm-hmm. of the late 40s. The last election, it got 2 percent of the vote. Uh, you know, people make a big deal about the national rally, rally under uh, uh, Marine Le Pen, but it's not a fascist party, uh, not remotely. Um, may, uh, I'm not even sure it's exactly a far right party, but it's, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but it's not a threat to democratic institutions. Uh, but more than that, I really had a mind to Gaulle as a thinker. He wrote five books um, up up until World War II. The first is a truly remarkable book. The Enemy's House, The Divided, was a book he wrote about why the Germans lost World War One. I. I actually, I actually just bought that because of yeah. <laughs> because yeah. of the, because of your book. I was, you know, and, you talk about uh, it. And I went and the goal saw. He, he was fascinated by the way the German military challenged legitimate constitutional political authority. People like Hindenburg and Ludendorff and Admiral Tirpitz, they, they, um, they drove out uh, Bethmann Helwig, the uh, elected chancellor, who wanted, with the help of Wilson, to negotiate a peace agreement. They unleashed unlimited submarine warfare in the United States, which forced Americans hand, America's hand, uh, and and De Gaulle suggests that a principle of extremism he attributes it in part to Nietzsche, a cult of the Superman, of militarism, of political extremism had replaced the old Protestant ethos of patriotism and military service. So it's a very rich book. It's a study of five episodes in the war that lead to the collapse of Germany. His other book, his great book, which I talk a lot about in the chapter, La Fille de l'Epée, The Edge of the Sword, is maybe one of the two or three greatest books ever written on military and uh, political leadership. And it's so interesting because, as the French writer André Marot put it, de Gaulle sketches an anticipatory self-portrait of the man of character who comes to the forefront in a time of crisis. But interestingly enough, this man of character is not a Bonapartist, he's not a Nietzschean, he's not a proto-tyrant. He's what de Gaulle called the ne protector, the born protector, uh, the good prince. He's a, he's a, a mark, marked by honorable ambition and moderation, magnanimity and moderation. Here you have a statesman in the middle of the world crisis, who's sort of using the categories of Aristotle and Cicero to describe himself, you know, a magnanimous man at the service of, you know, civilized freedom against totalitarianism. So those are some of the reasons why I say de Gaulle was really, I mean, Churchill was a great writer and and historical thinker, but more of a historian, um, more than that. I mean, his essays are so rich. And as you said, he there's something about his character that is so enticing. De Gaulle, by the way, in a beautiful passage in a war memoir, said Churchill was the greatest artist of this great and terrible drama of the 20th century. He, he talks about his evocative rhetoric. He talks about his nobility of character. And he says, whatever incidents got in the way between of the two of us, he said, none of them will get in the way of my ultimate judgment about the greatness of the man. So he wrote those in the 50s. And very interestingly enough, a lot of people make a, a lot of the tensions between Churchill and the Gaulle. There's that. Or off- De Gaulle and everybody. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, DeGaulle and everyone. Well, Eisenhower and yeah, 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 yeah. Well, actually, he and Eisenhower rather liked each other, but it was uh, Roosevelt who hated mm-hmm. DeGaulle, and uh, and uh, we continue to re- recognize Petain and Vichy France right up until November '42, and uh, so there's two sides of that story. But um, DeGaulle invited Churchill to Paris in uh, the fall of 1958 and gave him the highest medal of the French nation. And Churchill was very touched and spoke in his pigeon French. Uh, Churchill was so once so uh, uh, exasperated with the Gaulle, he turned to him and said, je vous liquiderai. I don't think liquiderai, liquider is a, well, it's not a common verb in French. <laughs> I will liquidate you. <laughs> but uh, but the two of them were uh, by 1958. They they were a brotherhood of two. You know, they were the the great little bit like Adams and Jefferson. You know, yeah. At they the were... end of their lives, they were best buddies. That was really. Chur- De Gaulle died in '70. Churchill died in January '65. De Gaulle wrote a letter to Clementine Churchill every year on Churchill's death to express his admiration for the great man and his uh, condolences to Mrs. Churchill. So that's, uh, that's what an old aristocrat does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I believe Churchill even said, uh, you know, uh, back at the time during the war or shortly after he's like, look, if, <clears throat> if I were in De Gaulle's position, uh, if I were De Gaulle, I would have acted exactly you know, like, <laughs> well, you like know, the golf. These are little, little two islands off the coast of Newfoundland, St. Pierre, mm-hmm. and, Michelin, uh, and Michelin, yeah. and the free French liberated them. And American public opinion was very excited, but Roosevelt and the secretary of state, Summer Wells were all worked up and they screamed at Churchill who then screamed at De Gaulle about this. Although Churchill privately said, you know, I would have done the same thing. Yeah. But, uh, uh, after he yelled at him, Churchill maintained, De Gaulle maintained his cool and he left the meeting and, uh, Churchill turned to his secretary, Jean Colville and said, that was very well done. In other words, uh, Churchill maintained, De Gaulle maintained his dignity mm-hmm. when, uh, De- De- Churchill felt obliged to report the anger of the Americans, but he respected De Gaulle's refusal to bow. Right. And uh, that that I think that's a very representative anecdote. You know, it it, it reveals a lot about both men. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, we've gone uh, long already, so um, let's try to start uh, wrapping up because I don't want to keep you too long. I know sure. you have to do. Sure. Uh, but we have one uh, main character left in the book, and that's uh, Václav Havel, uh, the great um, uh, Czech dissident. Um, and statesman. Uh, so, what uh, what are the lessons we can learn from uh, from Václav Havel? Well, you know, Havel was not a political man, except indirectly at the beginning. He was a writer, came from an old bourgeois family. He his family was their property was confiscated by the communists. He was not allowed a higher education. He became a playwright, I think, of great talent. But it was really a series of essays he wrote in the 70s and 80s, The Power of the Powerless, Politics and Conscience and the like. These were published in Samizdat, underground publishing in Czechoslovakia and also published in the West. He started a organization called Charter 77, just a couple of hundred Czechoslovakian citizens protesting against 
the totalitarian state and demanding that, uh, not expecting it, but demanding that the communist state live up to the uh, uh, protocols it had cynically signed at Helsinki in 1975. But, you know, he was arrested four times. He was even in prison for some stints, four or five years at a time. Uh, But he became a great moral leader of independent thought and action. And so when the Velvet Revolution came, when the, the, the Anus Mirabilis of 1989 came, he was the natural leader of the Czech people. Uh, of course, the two, the Czechs and the Slovaks, would peacefully separate in 92. But it's really interesting if you look at his January 1st, 1990 address to the Czechoslovakian people. He, he famously said, I have not become president of the republic to lie to you. Of course, you know, there's a lot of lies in politics, but not of the communist kind. The communists lied ontologically, fundamentally, about everything, you know. Peace is war, and war is peace, you know, all the things Orwell talks about, you know. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn and Havel both said, you know, the best way to bring down communism was by living in truth, or as Solzhenitsyn put, put it, live not by lies. Mm-hmm. That seemingly apolitical or anti-political act of just refusing to parrot the ideological cliches and lies would open up a space for freedom. What was interesting about Havel, you know, he remained president of uh, Czechoslovakia, then the Czech Republic, right, I think, until 2003. And mainly uh, he gave speeches about responsibility and he, he reminded his compatriots that there is an ethical dimension of freedom uh, and one should not uh, presume that liberation from totalitarianism meant the right to do whatever you want. So I think Havel, you mentioned before that all of the people I highlight in this book were gifted writers. He was certainly a very gifted writer, both as an essayist and playwright. Um, but he brought a moral integrity to his largely ceremonial role as president. He played a major role in international relations and in integrating the East Central European republics into the West. I think he was very widely admired, less well known among young people today because we don't talk about uh, the crimes of communism. We don't you know, read the Central European authors the way we should. Um, I think Nelson Mandela is a much better known figure than uh, Václav Havel. But for me, Václav Havel really is a model of moral integrity and a kind of new model of a statesman, somebody who showed how a person who was in a way not prepared to be a political leader rose to the occasion in very unusual circumstances and really remained committed to the same broad message of moral and political integrity and the refusal to live by ideological lies. So I think he's a great figure and, um, and it was fun writing about him because he's an inspiring figure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, final question then, since we've already gone so long, uh, again, it's another question I pretty much asked everybody that comes on. Uh, basically, what would you what would you like the audience to get out of this book? What's uh, what's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? Well, I'll cheat a little bit and have like part A. B. <laughs> I want them to come away with admiration 
not hagiography, as people say. This is not a live of the, of the saints. None of these figures aspire to be saints, um, although a few of them were religious minded. But I, I think I want to I want to encourage the reader to open his or her soul to these what these figures represent. You know, to their souls, to their characters, to their thinking, and to see that however imperfect all human beings are, some human beings inspire what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. You know, I think that's important. And then just to relate that to a point I made earlier, I hope my book not only informs and inspires but I hope it encourages, strengthens the impulse of good and decent people to, to come back to that phrase, to repudiate repudiation. In other words, reject this moral nihilism that shows such terrible ingratitude to the thought and action of the past. Open ourselves to these examples and uh, in a way that reflects the gratitude of free men who, uh, of, of free men and women to, uh, to those who made, you know, the decencies of Western civilization possible. All right, great. Uh, well, is there anything uh, before we go? Anything else uh, you want to plug? Anything you think uh, people? Uh, anything you got you're working on that uh, people should know about? Or well, any, uh, uh, right now, I'd say read the book. But I would do what you did, Tim. Uh, like you said, you bought the Gauls book. Use this as an opportunity when you're reading. I try to, you know, mention the best biographies, the best editions of the, of the respective figures' writings. I begin many of the chapters with epigrams, you know, so I try to point people toward mm. other reading and enjoyable reading. Mm. Um, I, I think that I was very grateful that you brought up the fact that um, these figures knew how to write and um, – you know, De Gaulle, for example, his war memoirs are in the Pleiad, the great works of French literature. And again, I can't picture any statesman or political leader in the contemporary Western world who would win a Nobel Prize for literature <laughs> or whose works would be included in the great works of national liter literature. But uh, so there's an opportunity here to read more broadly if one is so inclined. I never like to make those uh, suggestions in a commanding or despotic way. Yeah, you don't want to make it homework. No homework. <laughs> no homework. No commands, no homework. Okay. Just an invitation. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, again, the book is The Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. Uh, the author is Dr. Daniel J. Mahoney. Um, this book is sort of uh, right in my wheelhouse, so... Uh, uh, this is like the if I'm gonna read <laughs> books for uh, pleasure, the, the, these types of books are are, are sort of my my thing. Um, so I highly highly uh, enjoyed it, and I I believe all of you out there will too. Um, like I said, it's we're taping this on the 23rd, but by the time you guys are listening to this, it'll be uh, the book will be published. And it's coming out uh, on the 24th, which is tomorrow. So. Like I said, this will be uh, uh, this will air after the book is published. So make sure you guys go out and uh, pick up a copy and give it a read because you're gonna uh, you're gonna spend some time with uh, some people that are fun to spend some time with um, and learn some things uh, that you didn't know that uh, hopefully you'll carry forward with you. And you're just gonna have a lot of fun reading it. So uh, make sure you go out there and get it. And again. 
Dr. Mahoney, thank you very, very much for uh, coming on the show. I, uh, I uh, truly appreciate it. Oh, that's a great pleasure, Tim. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. And uh, again, if you like this podcast, please uh, make sure you leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you uh, have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to uh, heartland.org. And we have our Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast that you can find us at there, too. Uh, what, is our, what is our handle? I always forget. Our handle is uh, at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So uh, make sure you give us a follow. Uh, you know, If you have any questions or uh, anything you want to communicate, you know, feel free to send us a DM or whatnot and check us out there. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks again for listening, everybody. We will see you next time. Take care. Hi, Robbie. Hi, Mom. Love you both.